Hi there, and welcome to the Wayback Music Machine podcast. This is the show that takes a lighthearted look at the week that was in rock and roll history. I'm Tony Stewart, and I'm joined here by... Aaron Badgley. Aaron, how are you doing this morning? How are things in Toronto? Things are fine. It's a bit gloomy here, a bit uh, overcast and windy, but otherwise pretty okay. How about you? Well, we've got the overcast, we've got the windy, and we've also got the rain, so I think I've got you beat this time. <laughs> well, you could, you could win this one. <laughs> we've got an interesting show planned for today. We're going to be talking about a few gigs that went bad, and uh, you know, maybe I'll toss a few personal anecdotes in there as well, because I've had <laughs> my share of those, but... A couple of other stories as well, so what do you say we hit the road? So Kurt Cobain of Nirvana was one who used to court controversy at times. He certainly said and did a lot of things that raised a lot of eyebrows, and he did that in 1991 on November the 28th for a BBC Top of the Pops, which, by the way, Tony, Top of the Pops was a massive show in England, right? I mean, uh-huh. if you made Top of the Pops, you made it. But... Kurt Cobain had his own idea about when he went to sing Smells Like Teen Spirit because he kind of drifted away, did he not? Well, he did. And, you know, one of the things about these shows, Top of the Pops and, you know, shows in the United States like American Bandstand or is it was quite normal for the performers to be trotted out and to lip sync because they would have the backing track on. And in fact, they would even ask the musicians sometimes to fake play, right? So- mm-hmm. That was just a normal part of the industry, but a lot, some musicians really, really didn't like having to do that. And Kurt Cobain was one of them and he was supposed to lip sync smells like teen spirit. And he decided to protest and how he protested. Cause I've seen this clip several times as have you, but uh, why don't you tell our audience about uh, what Kurt decided to do that day? <laughs> well, he, where do you, where do you even begin? He, he, he sang an octave lower. But he said he was just imitating Morrissey from the Smiths, which really makes me laugh. Thinking of Kurt Cobain imitating Morrissey from the Smiths, <laughs> um, which I, you know you don't you, you don't expect to hear that ever. And then at one point he looks like he's trying to eat, yeah, literally eat his microphone. I, okay, and then he changes lyrics. Uh, so the opening line of "Smells Like Teen Spirit" is "Load up your guns, bring your friends." <laughs> wow, it got dark. Load up your load up on drugs. Kill your friends. So I, I I try to picture the BBC people literally pulling out their hair, not knowing what to do. Do we cut the camera? Do we stop this? Um, they didn't stop it. They just let it go. You know. Yeah, but he made no. Uh, he was about as subtle as a train wreck. You know, in in his in voicing his displeasure at having to do this. And some artists do that. They just make it very obvious that I'm supposed to be lip syncing this, but I'm not doing it, you know? Pink Floyd did that. When they did See Emily Play on American Bandstand, Sid Barrett was supposed to sing, let's sing in quotations, the song starts and he just stared at the camera, Tony. He doesn't mm-hmm. move his mouth. So so you're right. Some people just went, I don't want to do this, right? So. No, exactly. Now, what are your thoughts on that? Before we get into a little more Kurt Cobain chat, but what are your thoughts on that, on trotting out the musicians, asking them maybe to lip sync or asking them to sing in front of a backing track, even though the band is up there with them? How do you feel about that? I I, I understand from a technical point of view about having some control over what you're going to put out on the airways. So in terms of sound, I mean, I prefer live 
mm-hmm. know, that's one thing I liked about Saturday Night Live with, with two exceptions, bands played live. Same with the Old Grey Whistle Test, which was a British TV show, which was kind of a competition to Top of the Pops. The bands actually performed live. They didn't, they didn't sing to a track. I, you know, I always felt cheated, you know, when you I, see, you know, when you see people just lip syncing, you know. I do, and I and and in fact, I can give you a, a personal anecdote about some taking this kind of thing to the extreme. It didn't happen to me, but it happened to some guys that I know. Because you know, I'm a, a former professional musician in the Canadian Forces, right? That was my first career way back when. And the central band of the Canadian Forces uh, in Ottawa was invited to play at the Grey Cup game that was in Ottawa, and now the Grey Cup takes place when November, right? So Mm -hmm. they had to pre-record everything and then they had to walk out there on the field with all their horns and everything and pretend to play. And it was to a backing track. And I remember uh, some of the guys tell me just how ridiculous that felt. And you think, okay, maybe then you shouldn't have invited a a brass band or like a concert band out there to play if it's November and it's windy and it's rainy and and really cold, you know? Yeah, I mean, some of the stuff is is pure logic, you know? I I, I, We were talking before we started recording, I watched the Santa Claus, sorry, the Macy's Parade from New York, and Mariah Carey just once again made a spectacle of herself because she's trying to lip sync to the, you know, All I Want for Christmas or whatever it's called, and she's just blowing it again. And I I get it. You know, it's winter in New York City. You want to have control. But same thing, Tony. If you can't do it, then let's do something else that is as equally entertaining, like watching Mariah Carey not sing. I just, I'm just going to get a drink of water. I just vomited in my own mouth a little bit because you said Mariah Carey twice. Like, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> Even, you know, I, so I, I, I struggle with the whole lip syncing thing. I yeah. mean, can you imagine watching Live Aid? And the band's coming on lip syncing. It would have been terrible, right? Well, exactly. So it is what it is, though. And I, and I agree. From a technical point of view, if you're producing a television show or something, quality control and, and streamlining, you've just got to make sure. But the ones that really, for me, you know, sometimes you'd see on American Bandstand, you'd have a singer come out with no band with him right? Obviously singing or her and uh, singing to a backing track. And and it just always felt weird to me because from a musician's point of view, and I know you yourself too, as as a a ginormous music fan, you want to see the band play, right? Well, (laughs) yeah. And there's nothing worse than watching, for me, you know, I'm watching something on TV and it's blatantly obvious you're lip syncing. Yeah. You know, because the, the, you know, there's a, I'll give an example. I was watching one group and they're lip syncing away, and there's a piano solo, and yet there's no pianist on stage. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> You're like, <laughs> you know, do something to like make it look a bit better, right? But um, yeah, I, I just I can't. I mean, for me, I understand. But you know what? Even if you even if you prepare all this pre-taped stuff, bands like Kurt Cobain, Nirvana, Pink Floyd, if they don't want to do it, they're going to find a way to really, you know make the point and protest in their own way by screwing up the performance, right? Exactly. So folks, if you get a chance, watch that clip because it's uh, it's really informing actually uh, to watch Kurt Cobain and, and how displeased he is. But let's talk about uh, Kurt Cobain a little bit. Uh, of course, for an entire generation of people, the day that he died was, you know, very similar to maybe 
my generation, your generation, the way we felt on August 16th, 1977, when Elvis Presley passed away. But Cobain was a, a big John Lennon fan, wasn't he? Well, this is what I found interesting is that, you know, you listen to Nirvana and the band you don't expect to come up is the Beatles. Mm -hmm. And he said um, that he wrote a song called About a Girl for their first album called Bleach. He wrote that song after listening to Meet the Beatles over and over again for three hours. <laughs> but the, the story that made me laugh the hardest, because Cobain loved music. Yeah. And that's the one thing about, about Cobain. And when he when they he used to listen to a lot of tapes in the car or the truck or their their bus or whatever, and he used to nap in the van and listen to Queen. And he said, <laughs> "I'd listen to Queen over and over and over and drain the battery on the van, and we'd be stuck with a dead battery." <laughs> <laughs> That's such a great you know, music story, eh? <laughs> I tell you, it's a, it's a spinal tap moment. It really is. <laughs> So you picked the UK top five the week of November the 28th, 91. And this is a really interesting chart because I, I, I remember this vividly, of course. You know, I was 91. Gosh, I was, yeah, I got married in 91. So, so what was on the top five? It's interesting when you look at the top. This is the UK top five. And um, three of the five or greatest hits compilations. But number five is a film that I love, love, love. Oh, me too. Oh, The Commitments. Yes. I, I love The Commitments. Trivia. Remember the group The Chorus? Yes. Well, the, the lead singer of The Chorus is in The Commitments, but she doesn't sing in the film. She plays a, a young girl, but she doesn't actually sing. Uh, which one, Andrea or, or one of the other? Andrea. Andrea, okay, yeah. Yeah, so a little trivia there for you. Chorus fans, spot Andrea. And also... There's a lot it's of not hard, by the way. It's not hard to spot Andrea. Just saying. Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> little locker room talk there. <laughs> I, I ain't touching that one with a barge pole. Uh, <laughs> number four was uh, Paul Young from time to time, the singles. I I think Paul Young is one of the most gifted vocalists of all time. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a great singer. Yeah, he's fantastic. Number three is another compilation called Discography by the Pet Shop Boys, a group I loved. And, and, um, on our playlist for Spotify that I put together, I put a song by, by the Pet Shop Boys called It Doesn't Always Snow at Christmas. Give that a listen. I know you don't know it, folks, but it's a good song. Number two, speaking of Kurt Cobain, number two is Queen, Queen's Greatest Hits. And number one, an, an album that was my favorite album of 91, uh, Aunt Enya, Shepherd Moons. Love that album. Yeah, that's a, that's a great list. So, folks, we're going to go across the pond to Los Angeles next, and we're going to go to November the 29th, 2001. We'll be talking about a little bit of a sad story, but somebody who really impacted a lot of people. Of course, we're talking about George Harrison. So we'll be right back. November the 29th, 2001 was a sad day because we lost George Harrison. He lost his battle to lung cancer. He was only 58 years old, which so young. And, you know, Harrison had such a great post Beatles career first out of the gate, out of all the Beatles and just what a loss that was. And, and, you know, he really came into his own post Beatles, didn't he? Well, he, he really did, but he also had um, a huge, can you imagine you're in a band with John and Paul 
And they're writing, well, eternal classics. And mm-hmm. you're coming, you know, you, you're, you're trying to battle with these two mega forces. So when he came to record All Things Must Pass, it was a triple album because he had so much material that the Beatles never recorded. And, and so, yeah, he did come into, I mean, if you look at his accomplishments as a solo artist, I mean, he invented the, the superstar extravaganza concerts for charity with concert for Bangladesh. Yeah. I think he introduced the whole concept of world music by bringing Indian music into North America. He interviewed things, he introduced things like yoga, meditation into North America. And then there's his music, which is, which, you know, but I have to say, because I don't want this to be too depressing, Tony, I want to talk about something for a second. On November 29th, the day he passed away, an album came out in England by a guy named Jules Holland. And the whole concept of the Jules Holland album was that he got different people to sing on different tracks. And one of the tracks on the album was a song by George Harrison called Horse to Water, which was the last thing Harrison ever recorded. But, you know, George Harrison had a kind of a funny sense of humor. And the publishing company, when you when I got the album, the uh, CD, it said published by R.I.P. Music. <laughs> 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 so he, you know, he yeah, up to the very end, he had a good little chuckle on things. Well, right? didn't he? Didn't it? There's that story where he wasn't he talking to Ringo, and Ringo was saying he had to go somewhere, and Harrison is on his deathbed, and he just whispers to him like, "Do you want me to go with you?" <laughs> yeah, he did. Yeah, that was that was yeah exactly. He's, he's like, "Do you want me to come?" And he's like, "No, George." <laughs> you just, uh, you know, and then, I think the saddest story is McCartney who. Spent five hours with George just, I think, two days prior, and he just sat and held hands. He said, I never held his hand and all the time we were at the Beatles. And it was, you know, these, it, it, it's horribly sad. I remember the day mm-hmm. all too clearly. But let's also remember that this man produced some fine solo music, some, I mean, look at the classics he wrote with the Beatles, Traveling Wilburys. Yes. It's just, it's, it's, it's what a career this guy had, but also how he touched our lives in, in so many ways. I mean, can you imagine in 2022 a song like My Sweet Lord being a nas- international, worldwide, number one single? Yeah, it's hard to believe, isn't it? Yeah, but he did it. He did it. What can I say about Harrison? I mean, he's just, there's, uh, hey, and he was also a film producer. One of the funniest stories ever is that um, he read the script to Life of Brian. By oh, Monty that's Python right. And, that's right. Uh, and, Monty, <laughs> and Monty Python, uh, the, the funding got pulled because of the context of the film, uh, the subject so harrison paid to get the film made and when the astro had said they said why did you pay this like eight million dollars to get this film made george's i just wanted to see the movie (laughs) (laughs) and that was his sense of humor right that very dry (laughs) because even when you go back and watch the earliest beatles films right it was always harrison for me it was always george harrison's one-liners that just came out of nowhere you know and, and would just have me in hysterics I, but the, what, the other the other one that he said during an interview was when the, at the time when that piece of toast and we mentioned this before this piece of toast that he allegedly didn't finish <laughs> sold on the Sotheby's his comment was great he went I can't recall ever not finishing my toast I really like toast <laughs> <laughs> now see this is what this is how we should be celebrating Harrison right we're giggling away like a couple of schoolboys here yeah. but that's that's exactly I think what George would want right. Oh, I mean, he listen, this is a guy that found humor. And a lot of people thought this was a rather harsh comment, but I thought it was, I, I for what thought was funny when after Lennon passed away mid-80, for Live Aid, they said, are the Beatles going to reunite 
for Live Aid, and George's comment was, the Beatles aren't going to reunite as long as John stays dead. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, George. <laughs> oh, man. He did have a, you're right. His one-liners are just dry and, you know, yeah. droll almost, right? But great stuff. I love Harrison. Oh, so. me, me too. And you know my thoughts on Harrison as well. So you picked for a chart for this story, the top five solo album by George Harrison in terms of sales. And of course, I no, number one is no surprise, but let's no. go over the top five, shall we? Number five is probably one of my favorite albums by him. It's called 33 and a Third. Um, number five was that. It came out in 1976. Number four is an album called Dark Horse, which uh, is a very bleak album, but very brilliant in its own little way. I, again, comedy. He does a song on it called Bye Bye Love. And this is at a time when his wife left him for Eric Clapton. And it says, on the, if you look at the credits on the album, it says, um, all instruments by George Harrison except Patty, who's played by Eric. Bless his heart. Um, number three is the release posthumously in 2002 called Brainwashed. Number two, this is no surprise. This was oh, a huge album. It's such a out. great album. Yeah. Oh. Classic, classic album, Cloud Nine, with I uh, Got My Mindset on You, When yeah. We Was Fab. It's just a great album. I love, by the and, way, that When We Was Fab video is one of my favorite uh, all-time videos. <laughs> it's so great. It, it's so, again, the, the humor is there, right? Like, it's yeah. just, it's funny, and Elton John makes a little appearance, and oh, Ringo, and I mean, yeah. Ringo, Ringo just hams it up, and plus, Ringo's hard for doing that, right? Yeah, exactly. And number one is, of course... The classic uh, "All Things Must Pass," which I mean, how, what can you what what can you say about that album that hasn't been said? It, although you know that um, Phil Collins played drums on it, right? Did he? Where, which tracks? Well, this is the fun. Okay, this is another funny story. In 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 the nineties, when Harrison was remastering the song, he discovered that Phil played on "Wawa," and um, so he called Phil Collins up and says, "You know, I never gave you credit for playing on the album, but but I'm going to give you credit now." And he sets the call and he goes, but I want to send you your drumming track because it's, you know, let me tell you, let me know what you feel about it. So Harrison had someone go into the studio and record just the worst drumming you've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> and he sent it to Phil Collins. And <laughs> said, I don't know, Phil, if we can use this. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. That is totally brilliant. Yeah, that's, see, again, his, his, let's, let's have some fun, right? So, yeah, so that's, a little tribute to George Harrison. I, 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 what can I say? You know, I'm a Beatle guy, and these things are always hard on me. So, but yeah. Exactly. Now, Aaron, you know, a few episodes ago, we introduced a little segment called The Weird Files. And I'm going to be queuing up The Weird Files movie because, or uh, <laughs> the theme, sorry, for The Weird Files, because we've got a story about a teacher in Kentucky coming up, which is a little bit odd, and I think it qualifies. So we'll be right back. So this is a bit of an odd story, and we were talking earlier. I'll share that anecdote later on since I'm now retired. But uh, in 1987, on December 1st, a Kentucky teacher, and I could not find the name of the teacher, but a Kentucky teacher lost her appeal in the U.S. Supreme Court. So this went all the way to the Supreme Court over her getting fired 
for showing Pink Floyd's film, The Wall, to her class. So the court decided that the film was not suitable for minors with its bad language and sexual content. Now, my question is, beyond all this, who ratted her out for that? Come on, shame on you. Come on. Well, but to be fair, I don't know if you should show this film to kindergarten. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> That's right. Okay, kids. <laughs> Gather around. We're going to watch Big story, story time. <laughs> well, you know, you know, some kid went home and said to their parents, oh, we saw this movie today called The Wall. And and yeah. some some mother with way, or dad, with way too much time on their hands got on the phone, right? Yep. And in fact, I was sharing with you that... Uh, you know, I used to, used to be a rite of passage in my music class that my grade 12 students would get to watch Spinal Tap until someone ratted me out and I was told I can't do that anymore. So, uh, Was your hand slapped? Uh, yeah, well, I was just told you can't show that in class anymore. So my solution was we watched it at lunch hour instead. I just thought <laughs> <laughs> there's always a way around it, right? So, Well, you know, you should have said to the principal, what's wrong with being sexy? <laughs> <laughs> spinal tap line folks spinal tap line <laughs> oh but i can't believe, i'm so glad there's a sequel coming out by the way i i any more news on that when that's coming out they're filming in la and I, actually um it's supposed to be out as soon as as early as spring so now, do you remember, uh, I, I was in high school when, uh, do you remember The Wall Part 2 uh, was banned at my high school? You weren't allowed to play that song at dances or anything else. Like, I, it was a big deal, actually. We had a we had a jukebox in our high school. I was taken out of the jukebox. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you, God forbid having kids think for themselves, right? That, that's, you can't have that. Well, you know, it's it's funny because The Wall is, a, is one of those albums that um, there's so much on there that you could even question more so but they focused on this hey teacher leave them kids alone and mm -hmm. I, and and of course you know waters is smart enough to put improper english in the song to make his point but um when i saw roger waters here in toronto perform that song he brought a choir on from region park to do it it was very good oh wow was, yeah yeah it's very cool well very cool. you know a lot of time in these protests right I, the people who are protesting this stuff are missing the the point of the song entirely, right? And it, it seems like we have more and, and more of that uh, today, which is a little bit sad. But, you know, music is one of those things that part of rock and roll is always encouraging people to think for themselves, to question things, right? And and the establishment... Well, this is the... This is the whole cancel culture thing that it just drives me mental. Is that you know? I'm going to go with Dire Straits, "Money for Nothing," the whole verse that's been taken out. Yes, it was not ever intended to be what people said it was, which was anti, you know, LGBTQT. It was a, a point of of Nofler saying this is what people say about this, and and they're wrong to say it. But you know, it just got taken out of context, and people just and yeah. I, I and I get it. Okay, if you're offended by it. Fair enough, but it's just it's it's um, you got to. But then there's other artists and other things that get away with stuff. And you're kind of going, yeah. well, wait a minute, if I can't sing this, how come they can say that? You know what I mean? Well, it was like the ridiculous flap over that. What's the uh, Louis Armstrong and Ella Fitzgerald song there? Uh, the Christmas oh. one, uh, uh, "Baby, It's Cold Outside." You remember that that ridiculous when radio stations were deathly afraid of playing that song. Thankfully, they've started again, but it's just it. it it was nuts. It's an innocent song. It's not about 
you know, someone said, I, was one, I read one thing and said, oh, it's about date rape. You're going, are you serious? Like, well, you I really know. think this is what this is about? It's a funny song. It's yeah. about trying, you know, and she wants to stay anyways. Well, that's exactly. Do you exactly. know what I mean? Yeah, it's it's exactly. A, but uh, I don't know. I, I It always concerns me when people try to ban music. And at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland, they have that you've seen that eh? the the big display where they've got all the quotes from parents and church groups and uh, about rock and roll through the years. And uh, the one that stood out for me, and I'm not a fan of his music at all. Uh, you remember ice T and he did that cop killer song, right? Cop killer. Yeah. Yeah. And, and he's on that wall and, and he's saying, well, you know, if you actually listen to the song, I'm, I'm not advocating for killing police officers. Like, but people don't, take the time to listen and think critically and you know maybe that's one of the biggest problems uh, with education is that we we don't take the time to think critically about this stuff well this is it right like you gotta sometimes is there a subtext or you know what's the intention as opposed to seeing the word and saying well this is a well first of all in my opinion people are too easily offended these days i'm sorry just it's you know I'm offended by that. What What are you offended by? <laughs> well, and the and the other argument, right, is okay. You're offended, fine, but that doesn't mean that nobody else can can watch that or consume it, right? And and it's it's the big conundrum of our times, isn't it? Oh, it's it's terrible. Well, you know, and and this it goes back to '79 or '80, whatever the film came out. I mean, look, I I can understand a parent. I'm a parent. And there were times that certain things were shown or said, or and then you kind of go, well, let's have a discussion about why you did it, as opposed to I'm going to protest it, you know. Mm-hmm. But and did she really deserve to lose her job over it? Seriously? Yeah, it's like, it's wild too that it got taken all the way up to the Supreme Court. But anyway, you know that's the story. So that's a little bit a uh, little bit odd. And I thought that qualified for a weird files. And you know what? Speaking of weird, Aaron, uh, we've got a U2 story coming up after the break about just a, an awful gig. So what do you say we take a little breather and we'll be right back. You know, Tony, there's there's tons of stories about huge bands playing to very small crowds. In fact, there's one about the Beatles uh, back in 1962 playing to seven people in a, in a place in Whirl, which is outside of Liverpool. But what's funny about these stories is you'll find 10,000 people who were there, <laughs> who would say they were there. So in 1979, uh, what day was this? This is the ni- December 4th of 1979. You too appeared at the Hope and Anchor, the iconic, iconic venue in London. They misnamed the band. So instead <laughs> of you two, right? Talk about Spinal Tap. I told them we should be above the uh, the, the puppet show. Yeah. Um, so what they call they, they call them the U twos, right? <laughs> the U twos, uh, and they played to only nine people, and then the show ended very abruptly after the Edge broke a guitar string, and no doubt had a few four letter words after he broke that guitar string. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's just one of those gigs that just I'm sure they were just okay. Let's get out of here. Every musician can tell you stories about gigs like that. You know, Rick and I have done gigs like that. We've we've had gigs where we played to two people one time, you know. So there's two of us and the two people in the bar. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> it's like, okay, what do you want to hear next, you know? 
Well, and that's the true professional, right? Like you, you, yeah. There's, there's every. I, I can't think of anyone who hasn't had a similar. You know, like you. But you just plow on through, right? I mean, good for you guys to play for the two people and take requests, and then. I hope that when they shouted out numbers, you went, no, we don't do that one. No, we're not <laughs> doing <right>. that one. <laughs> no, no, we're not doing that. Sorry. No, no, no. Hey, you know what? Just shh. We'll do our own stuff. <laughs> That's right. But it, uh, it, every, every group has stories like that. You hear, you know, the Rolling Stones, same thing uh, early on in their career, had gigs like that. And it, it just, I, I can tell you one, Aaron, we were playing, oh God, this was, I was in a group with Rick before we started doing the Somerset combo. And it was more of a kind of a pop, rock kind of group i was playing keyboards and uh rick booked us into this place and i'm trying to remember what it was called but he said oh, it's this hopping place is supposed to be really hopping and we get there and there's three or four people in the bar and and while we're on break so it was like a dud right and while we're on break this guy comes over to the table obviously had way too much to drink and he's trying to hypnotize us and stuff and <laughs> it was the weirdest <laughs> <laughs> we ended up i think losing money that night by the time we each had a you know a couple of drinks and uh, yeah we i think i walked out of there with 17 bucks in my pocket or something <laughs> <laughs> but but the question is were you hypnotized <laughs> no i think i made it out okay actually okay good i'm i was because I, I was wondering so sometimes if i say a certain word you start clucking like a chicken i, I, I just i just <laughs> I just thought it was an Ottawa thing, but no, but you know. <laughs> oh man. But you know, you take that and then in a few short years later, right? 1979, December 4th, and then just a few short years later, and U2 is is taking the world by storm, but it just goes to show you how everybody's got to get their start somewhere. Well, the first time the police played Toronto, they played to six people. And we we're I was at a record store the other day and um talking to this guy about it, and he says, you know. Thousands will come in and say, "Oh, I was at that gig." You know, no, <laughs> I don't think so. Do you have a ticket stub? Like, I saw um, there's a guy named Billy Bragg. I'm a big fan of, and I have yeah. the ticket stub. I have the ticket okay. stub. And he played Larry's Hideaway, uh, which was used to be across from Maple Leaf Gardens. It's been burnt down. And um, my friend Greg and I went, and there was 11 in the audience. Mm -hmm. And he signed my album cover, and we chatted. He was a lovely. He, he still is a lovely guy. But so I, I was at that show, but you know, people go, well, I was at that Billy Bright. Cause I don't think so. I don't remember seeing you there. <laughs> That's right. And I would have seen you, but sometimes, <laughs> those, sometimes those shows can be great too. You never, you know, cause the artist will just talk a lot more with the, the small audience and, and decide to do things they might not have done if more people were there. So it can be really fascinating, but you were talking about the police a second ago uh, and your chart, the police come in at number five, don't they hear? You picked the top five UK albums from the week of December 4th, 1979. And, and number five is The Police. So uh, yeah, why don't you lay out this chart well, for I, us? I, I, I thought I did the UK albums to kind of show that people were buying records and record stores instead of going to the U2s. <laughs> <laughs> where, where was everyone? They were at the record store buying The Police, Regatta de Blanc. Great yeah. album too, by the way. Oh, it is a fantastic album. Fantastic. Number four is another one of my favorite albums of all time. The jam, um, the jams. No, <laughs> I wrote jams. It should be the jam. Uh, Setting suns. Uh, Paul Weller just recently did an interview, and he talked about how much he strongly dislikes The Cure, which made me laugh so hard. I don't know why. It just was, it came out of the blue. Like wow. Yeah. And Tony, when I say he doesn't like them, 
he, like your reaction to MC, you know? Same okay. Thing. Yeah, yeah. Number three, Rod Stewart's greatest hits. Number two, Diana Ross, 20 greatest hits. Number one, ABBA, greatest hits. <laughs> the, uh, the week of the greatest hits and greatest hits volume two for ABBA. Sorry, volume two. You're right. You're yeah. right. Yeah. Wow. Now, uh, it is time for our From Memphis to Merseyside moment. We actually had three different Elvis stories to pick from this week, but we'll decide on the break which one we're going to talk about, and we'll be right back. So we've decided we're going to touch on all three of these Elvis stories very briefly for you. So November the 28th, 1960, Elvis Presley, he's back from Germany at this point. Elvis Presley started a six-week run at number one on the U.S. singles chart with Are You Lonesome Tonight? That was amazing, isn't it? His third U.S. number one of 1960. And he always includes a spoken passage in that, but there's a spoken passage in there loosely based on Shakespeare. Any thoughts on that, Aaron, on that story? Well, well, I just, I very quickly want to say that in the playlist I put together, I put a live recording of Elvis doing the song where he cannot stop laughing during yeah, the spoken he, word. He he always screwed that up. And that happened uh, quite frequently, a lot, of, a lot of concerts. He would just lose it in the middle of Are You Lonesome Tonight? And when he starts laughing, it's hilarious. Oh, it's so funny. And I mean, you, you have to, you, you, you haven't lived to hear Elvis talk about the fuzzy wuzzy bears. So, um, <laughs> It's 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 one of the funniest things you'll ever hear, folks. So just just check that out. Give it a listen. Okay. Give it a listen. Second story. We're going to backtrack to December third, nineteen fifty-five, and it's his first release on RCA Victor Records was announced. So the first two songs they were going to release were "Mystery Train" and a great title. I forgot to remember to forget. They those both of those had been purchased from Sam Phillips at Sun Records, and. I love, what did they say about Elvis here, Aaron, in the press release, which is a great quote. I know. The most talked about personality in recorded music in the last 10 years. Yeah, so that's story so number two. Who was, who, was, who was the most talked about 10 years prior, I wonder? Uh, probably Frankie, eh? Frank Sinatra, maybe? Frankie, yeah. I, I would have been. Must have been. Okay, and we'll go to the third one, and this is the biggie. December 4th, 1956, the... Million Dollar Quartet, that was the name given to them by the press right afterwards, but it was an impromptu jam session taking place at Sun Studios in Memphis. Elvis, by that point, he, he had already been moved over to RCA, but he had stopped by Sun Studios and he saw that Jerry Lee Lewis and Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash were there and Elvis joined them and Sam Phillips decided to get the tape rolling and capture a lot of this and it earned the nickname the Million Dollar Quartet, and they just had a great time. And we've talked about this in the show before, that you know that for a lot of the session, Elvis is actually at the piano, even though Jerry Lee Lewis is in the room. So what, what can you say about the Million Dollar Quartet? Just amazing. Well, thank goodness someone had the hindsight, the foresight to record it, because someone actually did record it. Not the greatest quality recording, but it's recorded. And, um, you know, in the 80s, they tried to recreate the Million Dollar Quartet. And because Elvis was gone, they brought in Roy Orbison. Mm-hmm. So it was Roy Orbison, Jerry Lee Lewis, Johnny Cash, and Carl Perkins. Not quite the same, not a great album, but, you know, it was, it was God bless him for trying. But there was something mad. See, when you try to do something, it doesn't come off as well as when things just happen. And that just happened. Like, yeah. that's all right, mama. 
right? Same thing. Well, exactly. There's four guys who are just music lovers, talking music and singing. And a lot of the clips from this uh, Million Dollar Quartet recording session are just 30 seconds, right? They sing a, a verse of something and then they can't remember the rest of the words, let's say, or they're just noodling around. It's just, it's, it's so great. Yeah, you, when you listen to it, you feel like you're eavesdropping on just some people hanging out. You, you, you expect, this is what you'd hear at a party in my days when they had a piano on the, you know, I'm sure you would, you'd be the guy at the piano and you would just be, Hey, Tony, do this little song. You do a little bit of it to move on to something else, right? Well, that's right. And you know what, Aaron? Uh, we're at the end of the show here. This, I got to say, this has been one of my favorite shows for a long, long time. Boy, we laughed a lot today, didn't we? Oh, we did. <laughs> we did. Especially at a time when we were talking about something very sad, but we still had some good laughs. Yeah, and I thought, you know, we got a little philosophical today. Um, so, great show, my friend. The music today, of course, provided, as always, by Rick Denis, and thank you, Rick, for that. This has been an M2M production recorded here at the Bunker Studio in Perth, and of course, the Bunker is my basement studio at home, but I love I love calling it the Bunker because it's an old century home. So, folks, the biggest thing you can do if you enjoy the show, just encourage other people to listen, share our posts, or tell a friend and say, hey, listen to the show, you might like it. Also... You can listen to the show on the radio as well. And radio listeners, you get a special bonus at the end of the show, the post-podcast show. But every week, Aaron puts out a Spotify playlist that you can listen to if you're one of our podcast listeners. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for letting us into your headphones. And Aaron, if the man is getting you down, what should you do? Just keep rocking. That's basically it. See you next time, folks. (laughs) 